Hello, Maranatha. I'm glad that you've joined us once again for our sermon series in the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. So if you want to open your Bibles uh, so you can follow along as we read, but also you can reference back as we talk about it. Just a couple of announcements as we begin to go here. I want to remind you to fill out the digital connect card that's on our website. So if you just scroll past this video once we're finished, uh, there's a button there that says Connect Card. You can click on it, and then it's just going to ask for some basic information. That information uh, is not so we can track you down. That information is for us to know how we might be able to pray for you or how we might be able to serve you. That really is our, uh, our motive with these cards. We want to know what's going on in your life because we care about you, we love you, and we, we want you to, to, to be connected with us as we want to be connected with you. So you regular attenders and you members, please excuse me, fill those out because uh, it matters to us. We really do use them as a tool. Also, some uh, exciting news. We're going to regather as a church on July 12th. Uh, we are going to have our regular 9 and 11 o'clock gatherings on Sunday morning. So uh, keep, your, uh, keep your ears open because we are going to be sharing the information about how we're going to go about regathering. We'll, we'll put it on the website and in our social media, but we'll also send it out in that Wednesday newsletter, uh, so you won't be uninformed in how we're going to go about doing that, okay? Also, I want to invite you uh, this Wednesday, the 24th, uh, to Victory Park here in Pickerington. The churches of the city of Pickerington are going to be gathering there uh, to collectively pray and lament over what's been going on in our nation. We're going to go there and we're going to pray and lament together as Christians, seeking the Lord together in one voice, uh, essentially, uh, over the sin of racism in our world. So I want to ask you to come down and join us in that. It'll be a great opportunity for maybe some uh, education, but also some unity with people in our city that you might not have a chance to uh, be shoulder to shoulder and on your knees with on a regular basis. So please come down uh, on Wednesday, the 24th, to Victory Park um, to join us in prayer and lament over uh, the sinfulness of racism that has really plagued our world. Okay? Uh, before we begin, I would love for us to pause the video or, or, or take a moment and text somebody uh, to wish them peace. Peace because what we have in Christ, what he has done for us and what he has given us is salvation, is uh, fear from death, which like we're going to talk about today. And that brings us peace, that gives us peace here in this life, uh, recognizing that we are secured for the next. So if you would now, take some time, text somebody, uh, pause the video, make a quick phone call, and pass the peace that we have because of Jesus Christ. Okay, Maranatha, thank you for doing that. I'm grateful for each and every one of you. It's a, it's a real blessing, honestly, each Sunday, even as we've been doing these uh, video sermons and gathering virtually, uh, to take the moment for myself and my family to pray for you and to reach out for you. And um, It's been kind of sweet. It's been a sweet way to, to interact with one another. So, so thank you for doing that. Like I said, we're going to be in John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. So if you want to uh, look to your Bibles, I'm going to read. If you would just follow along. And then we'll pray as usual. <clears throat> Again, chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, or, so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, 
He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sisters, her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. His disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I go to wake him up. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant that he rests in sleep. They, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you so much for, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this opportunity where we can come and we can hear it preached, that we can come and have your spirit illuminate what you want to communicate to us about your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that as we are feeling disconnected, as we are feeling isolated, as we are uh, working through the difficulties that are uh, plaguing this world, I pray, Lord, that we seek you here. I pray that we as a church, that we don't get consumed by the conversations of the world and we don't get wrapped up in all the, 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 the rabbit trails that we can run down trying to seek answers, but Lord, let us go back to the well that will provide us with thirst-quenching truth. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity. I'm so grateful for Maranatha and this church that you've built. I'm grateful for the family that we are. I pray, Lord, for our continued unity and that our love will communicate to our city that you love us and that you have been sent here for our salvation. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in your son's name we pray on the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so as I, over the years, have worked to understand salvation and God's willingness to save me from my own sinfulness, I often honestly drift back to this story. I often will go back to remembering and thinking about this story that includes Lazarus. You see, these moments that are captured here in chapter 11 are the moments of Jesus' final and greatest miracle during his life and ministry while he walked this earth. These moments are, uh, are the last and the, the, the final and the greatest miracle that he did in his life while he walked this earth, as well as we've followed this narration by the Apostle John. This is the final major event that he records before Jesus goes on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem for what is known as Passion Week. Passion Week, in, uh, as the church calls it, Passion Week signifies Jesus' final week of ministry before he was actually hung on the cross for our sin. This is a, a pivotal moment. Chapter 11 is 
such a great part of John's gospel because it so clearly articulates the glory of Christ. It's so wonderful because it so clearly articulates the glory of Christ. In this chapter, we get to see unmistakably His divine nature and His divine status. This chapter is so incredible because it paints this wonderfully clear picture of contrast. A clear picture of contrast. We see Jesus' glory and how it is illuminated and experienced through His love and affection for His people, which blazes against the backdrop of hatred and rejection that we see spewing out from the religious Jewish leaders. It's a great opportunity. Chapter 11 is beautiful in way of contrast. Chapter 11 is really a fantastic single story, but we're going to break it down into four parts. What we're going to do over the next four weeks is really, uh, I'm going to break it down into a four-part mini-series, and this is how I'm going to uh, chop it up. First, we're going to look at the recognition of death in verses 1 through 16. We're then going to look at the response to death in 17 through 37. Then we're going to talk about the resurrection from death, in verse 38 through 44. And then we're going to talk about the eternal plan for death in verses 45 and 57. So recognition of death, response to death, resurrection from death, the eternal plan for death. So, like we must, let's begin at the beginning with the recognition of death. Last week, as David preached, last week in chapter 10, it finished with Jesus leaving Jerusalem to seek safety for his life, if you remember. At the end of chapter 10, we see Jesus leaving Jerusalem, seeking safety for his life because the religious Jewish leaders wanted to arrest him. But it's even worse than that. The religious Jewish leaders, they wanted to kill him. They, in fact, wanted to stone him to death. That's literally taking rocks and throwing them at someone and beating them to death. Therefore, as has happened multiple times already in this gospel, Jesus slips away from them because it wasn't the appointed time for his death. Jesus is able to slip away because there is a divine time appointed for his death, and it wasn't that moment. We're told then, that he left Jerusalem and then he crossed the Jordan. And where he went was a place where John the Baptist was actually at one time baptizing people. As well, we're told in chapter 10, verse 40, that this is where he remained until he received this message from his dear friends. Now, their message that they sent to him was simple and beautifully tender, but it was also a distress call. It was simple and it was tender, but it was also a distress, a distress call. They said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And they weren't trying to manipulate him. They weren't trying to coerce him into coming back to doing what they wanted him to do for them. They simply said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, this message alone says a lot about the relationship that Jesus had with whoever it is that sent this message. It tells us a lot. So let's look at actually who sent this message, right? Let's go back to verse 1. Verse 1 says this, Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, 
the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. As I read this, I've always found it interesting that John begins by referring to Lazarus as a certain man. It seems a little uh, plain. He's a, he's a certain man. And some commentators would say that John is doing this because Lazarus isn't the primary focus of the following story. And I don't think they're wrong because he's not. The Bible's purpose is not to catalog historical uh, events or stories uh, about everything we read, but although everything we read is historically accurate. The purpose of the Bible is not to just simply record historical stories, although everything we read is historically accurate. The Bible's purpose is to teach us and to reveal to us the Christ. Lazarus is not the point. Jesus is. But I think John may be highlighting Lazarus for a particular reason. John may be highlighting Lazarus. He, may, he might be emphasizing the relationship that Jesus had with Lazarus, the relationship. The relationship then of this certain man, this particular man matters because it helps us grasp and appreciate who and what Jesus is for us. It helps us to grasp and appreciate who and what Jesus Christ is to us. Lazarus could be anyone, but he is a particular someone because Jesus Christ has come to save everyone. Lazarus could be any of us. He could be anyone, but he is a particular someone because Jesus Christ has come to save everyone. John also tells us that Lazarus lived in the same village as his sisters Mary and Martha. In fact, they're the ones who send the message. Now, Mary and Martha, they're spoken of in another gospel. They're spoken in the gospel of Luke, and that's important for us to know because, again, it shows us the importance of their friendship. The way that John brings them up or the way that he mentions Mary and Martha is is the way as if anyone who were to read this account would already know who they were. They were already so relationally important that anyone who would have known Mary and would have read this would have already known Mary and Martha. John even goes as far as mentioning an intimate moment that they shared, which will explain, uh, which is explained rather later on in chapter 12, where Mary anoints Jesus' feet while showing her affection for him and her humble service to him. The point is here, the point of why we're talking about these people, the point is that they loved Jesus and Jesus loved them. And that's why the tender yet distressing call, in part, moved Jesus to do what he did. Remember, Jesus wasn't hiding across the Jordan River. He wasn't hiding. He was, in fact, still ministering to the people there. According to 1042, many of them were coming to believe in him as the Savior. The ministry was continuing. It was bearing fruit, as it were. But in the midst of this, In the midst of ministering and doing the work that he was called to do, Jesus is approached by a messenger and he hears about his dear friend's illness. In the midst of the work that he is doing, he receives the the, the messenger and he hears of his dear friend's illness and with total confidence, 
total confidence in the Father's will and ability, he sends this incredibly encouraging message back to Mary and Martha. He says this, listen to verse 4. When Jesus heard the message, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus loved these three people. He spent time in their home. They supported him, and they they served in the ministry, and they likely followed him when they could. They probably even witnessed him heal people, which is why they trusted that he could do the same thing for them, for their brother. So imagine the impact of Jesus' words once they reached Bethany. Remember, Jesus receives the message and he sends back those encouraging words. Imagine how they experienced Jesus' return message once it reached Bethany. These words, once they reached Bethany, were in the reality after Lazarus was dead. You see, according to where Jesus was, it would have taken the messenger at least a day to reach them. And what we learn in verse 17 and verses 39 is that Lazarus was lying there dead for four days once Jesus arrived. So it fits the narrative because it would have taken the messenger one day to travel to where they were. Jesus then delays for two more days. And then, of course, he would have had to travel to Bethany, which would have taken another day, which is four days. So it's likely that Lazarus died almost immediately after the messenger was sent. They would have received Jesus' words after Lazarus was dead. So again, just for a moment, imagine getting those words from Jesus after your brother had died. This illness does not lead to death. This is meant to glorify God. What could be done? Imagine yourself as Mary and Martha. What could Jesus be saying? What, could, what more could be done? Now, if you don't know the whole story, Jesus' actions or his words might seem sort of confusing or cold. After all, the man, a man, a friend whom he loved is dying. At least that's the message that he received, right? But because of Jesus' omniscience, Jesus knew that Lazarus was already dead. Because of his all-knowing ability, Jesus already knew that Lazarus was dead. So when we hear him say those words, there must be something more that was to be done. There was something more than just bringing him back to life. There was more to the plan. Which is why he delayed for another two days. There was something more, which is why he delayed for two more days and then said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now this confused the disciples. This call to go back to Judea confused and shocks the disciples. They say to Jesus, why? Why do you want to go back there? Just now the Jewish leaders are attempting to kill you. Why would you want to go back there? Why would you want to leave this place, this place of safety and obvious fruitful ministry to go and face death? Why? Jesus answers them like this. In verse 9, he says, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. 
But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, this isn't as cryptic as it might seem. Not quite as cryptic as it might seem. You see, at that time in history, people separated the day and the night uh, with 12-hour segments. But unlike today, those measurements could differ based on the season or the time of year. So basically what he is saying is when the sun is out, it's time to work. When the sun is not out, work is stopped. The daylight hours then that Jesus is talking about is referring to the allotted time that God the Father has set for his son's earthly ministry. There was work to be done while the light was with them. As well, it spoke of how in creation, how creation not only has purpose, but it also has order and that no one can extend or shorten the length of day. There is an allotted time for Christ's ministry. Therefore, if we apply what Jesus is saying to this moment as well as to the questions of the disciples, we can see that Jesus is informing them that despite their worry and concern, nothing, not even the red-hot hostility of the Jewish religious leaders could prematurely shorten his life. Again, there is plan and purpose to all of this. Nothing could prematurely end Christ's life. So Jesus goes on, or John goes on. After saying these things, he said to them. He's essentially dropped this thing on them, and he pauses and he says, okay, you got it? After saying this, he then says this, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, to fall asleep is sometimes used in the Bible as a euphemism for death particularly for believers, but that's exactly what it means. Okay, when they say he has fallen asleep, he's talking about death. It actually means, it doesn't, or rather, it doesn't actually mean uh, falling asleep in a way as if you're sort of just laying in a tomb in some sort of soul sleep, just waiting to be jolted to life. No, it means death. And the Bible is clear when it comes to death that once you pass, you are present and awake and aware the moment after death. The Bible is clear on that. There is no such thing as soul sleep. But remember, the disciples are not all-knowing like Jesus. They're not all-knowing like Jesus, so they press him again to stay away from the danger. They say, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, then he's okay. He will recover. So Jesus gives it to them bluntly. He, He says it plainly. He says, Lazarus has died. Again, this is showing his omniscience. This is showing his unmistakable knowledge of all things. And then he says, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. So that you may believe. But let us go to him. He's glad that he was not there. Now, now Jesus is not celebrating his friend's death, but he knows what he's about to do, which we're going to get to in the next couple of weeks. He knows what he's about to do. He knows that the miraculous work that is about to happen will solidify and transform the faith of his disciples. He knows what's coming for them. That's why he's glad that he was not there, so that they may believe. And then Thomas speaks up. And then the... <laughs> 
Then Thomas speaks up. This Thomas is the same Thomas that in the scriptures or even in church lore is known as the doubter. You see, when Jesus returned from the grave after his own resurrection, Jesus went to his disciples to send them off into the world on the mission of spreading the good news of himself to all corners of the earth. But Thomas in John chapter 20 is exposed in his doubt. He openly questions the reality of Jesus being brought back from death. Now, to be honest, Thomas's questions comfort me. Thomas and his questions comfort me at times because it's nice to know that doubt is not a disqualifier for faith. Doubting these hard truth is not a, not a disqualifier for, for faith, but, it's, but there's more in this man, Thomas, than it seems. There's more to this man, Thomas, than just simply doubt, just as there often is with anyone else who wrestles with this reality. Here we see in this man uh, incredible love, incredible devotion, and great courage. Remember, at this moment, put yourself in their, in their shoes and in this, in this time frame, at this moment, the disciples are more or less convinced that if they return to any place near Jerusalem, Jesus is going to be killed. This is what they believe. They believe that if they, re, if they return to anywhere near Jerusalem, it would mean certain death for Jesus. And yet Thomas, although maybe misinformed, Thomas takes a deep breath and then boldly declares, if Jesus is to die, let us go that we may die with him. This is incredible. This is incredible. If Jesus is to die, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas's love for Jesus is what's important here. His devotion to Jesus is so strong that he would even die for this man. Unknowingly, Thomas declares, Thomas tells us what all believers are called to do. Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Those are Jesus' words. 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. That's Paul. Again, Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are called to die to ourself. We are called to give our life because our life has been purchased with a price. So what's the message that Jesus is trying to tell us? What's the message that Jesus is trying to tell us? Well, I think here in, in just verses 1 through 16, he's telling us two things. He's telling us, one, that we can have hope despite our suffering, and two, that our suffering and troubles do have greater purpose. Hope because even if our circumstances seem desperate, we can trust his word more than how things may appear to us. 
We can trust his word more than how things may appear to us. And for those who are suffering or when we suffering, we can believe that even if these things are being allowed by God, the purpose of our suffering is about something more than ourselves. It's meant to manifest God's glory. Even as we suffer, we can recognize and believe that our suffering is meant for something more than we understand, something more than just ourselves. It's meant to manifest God's glory. Chapter 11 is more than just Jesus gaining praise for raising Lazarus from the dead. Rather, through this miracle, Jesus is promising his faithful followers something greater than just an extension of life here on earth, which will inevitably end in death. Instead, what he is promising The glorious gift that he is pointing us towards and desiring for us to understand is life that begins with resurrection from spiritual death and what will remain forever beyond the reach of of death's eternal touch. There is more than just this life. There is an eternal life waiting for all of us and Christ desires to give you salvation so you can be with him for eternity. So you can acquire, so you can be given and you can grasp hold of the eternal inheritance and all the spiritual blessings that come to us in Christ. That is what he is desiring for us to understand. That is what he is trying to tell us. Because Jesus has destroyed the power of death. And what does that mean for you and me? If Jesus has destroyed the power of death, what does that mean for you and me who believe it is that we no longer have to fear it? We do not have to fear death. Christ has proven, Christ has proven to us that despite our illness of sin, we too are whom he loves. We too are whom he loves. Now next week we're going to work our way through verses 17 and 37 and the response to the death of Lazarus. Next week is part two about the response to death of Lazarus. So if you would now, pray with me. Father, we love you and thank you. Thank you for the promise, the hope, and the belief that is given to us through the recognition of God's glory, of Christ's glory. Lord, I pray that as we work through this life, as we struggle through our loneliness and our isolation and our sufferings, and the difficulty that this world uh, heaps upon us as we, as we face sinfulness and injustice in this world in so many different ways. I pray, Lord, that we, that we work and we strive so that more people can see who Christ is, who can recognize his glory as it is manifested through our suffering. Lord, be with us. This is a... This is a difficult challenge to accept in our power. So Lord, I ask for your spirit to strengthen us, for us to feel your presence, Lord, in ways that maybe we never have before. And for those who are here listening who do not understand what we are talking about and do not understand the resurrection of Christ, Lord, I pray that you give them eyes to see. Give them ears to hear. Transform their heart now, Lord, so they can grasp hold of all the promises that we just talked about as they suffer through this world just like we do. We are not promised health and wealth here, Lord, because we follow Christ. In fact, we recognize pain and struggle and difficulty in this world because of sin. 
And that recognition only comes through Christ. Father, I pray for salvation for all of our friends and family members. I pray for greater faith for all of us at Maranatha who, who already belong to your, to your kingdom, Lord. Lord, be with us. Watch over us as you promise you will. Thank you for loving us. We love you. Help us with our illness. In Christ's name, amen. Peace be with you.